Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe. Hey everyone, welcome to the Heart Over High podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Shamar Charles. This podcast focuses on the goal of providing unique and culturally sensitive perspectives on physical, mental, emotional, and spiritual health and wellness. Our goal is to provide you with the best millennial and Gen Z health news you can use. If you like this podcast, follow us on Instagram at Podcasts and give us a rating of five stars on iTunes or wherever you listen to your podcast. Now, without further delay, let's get started. Hey everyone, Happy New Year and welcome to another episode of Heart Over Hype. I'm your host, Dr. Shamar Charles, and it's been a month since we last spoke. It feels like it's ages. I've definitely missed you all dearly, but I gotta remind you guys, New Year, same me. So I'm ready to rock and roll in 2021, put in 2020 behind me, and I hope you all are as well. Today we're talking long-term health consequences of COVID-19, specifically when it comes to our mental health. To help break this down, I have with me Dr. Hysom Gwaley. Hysom completed a dual residency in family medicine and psychiatry at Case Western Reserve University. He specializes in the medical and psychiatric care of geriatric patients. He's also a former city council candidate and has worked to develop successful healthcare solutions around the world through engagement with diverse communities. Thanks for being here with us, Hysom. But before we jump right in and tackle all the issues, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Yeah. So my name is Heisman Gwaley, uh, and I am the son of two Egyptian immigrants uh, who came to this country for a better life for their kids. Uh, and what they really impressed upon us growing up was the importance of giving back and being part of community. Uh, and so when I thought of my various options, uh, which were limited because they are immigrants uh, and really demand uh, perfection, uh, I thought medicine would be a good career path for me. Uh, I am passionate about people, and I really care about what happens to them. Uh, I think that everyone deserves a dignified life and that everyone belongs to somebody. And that belongingness is important and uh, essential. And if I could have any part in making that better, I wanted to be a part of that. So I went off to medicine uh, and chose to do a residency in family medicine and psychiatry because I wanted to take care of all people, regardless of the illness and regardless of age, uh, when they came to my office. And I was also very interested in international health and thought that actually set me up best to take care of people in under-resourced environments. Uh, and what became really clear as I was practicing medicine is that you didn't have to travel very far to find under-resourced areas in the United States. And I've made my career taking care of groups that are uh, thought to be sort of uh, neglected patient populations. So that's older adults, uh, people who suffer with addiction, uh, mental illness, uh, and the one group that I don't work with is kids. Uh, but these four groups basically show you how good your healthcare system is. Uh, and having practiced now for the past 10 years, I can tell you that we do a very bad job. Uh, and I don't think that that is surprising to anyone, uh, given the COVID pandemic. One residency is hard enough, but you did too. That's amazing. You mentioned that we are doing a bad job in addressing health across the board. And the first thing that comes to mind is funding. We can't do anything because our system doesn't fund preventative services, and that is integral to uh, primary care, 
and mental health, especially with respect to good outcomes. Can you tell us about lack of funding in mental health, how that impacts outcomes, and your perspective on how these two have worsened or maybe even gotten better uh, during the pandemic? Yeah, I think when we look at our society and try to figure out why are these groups that I mentioned before considered under-resourced and, and underfunded, it's because our society values production uh, and, uh, and the ability to make money. And these four groups are considered uh, to be groups that are less productive uh, than, than other, uh, other patient populations. And I think what ends up happening is because they are uh, under, because they don't produce as much, people feel like, well, we don't have to care about them uh, because money drives the conversation. And so what we are finding is that mental health is completely underfunded. It has been underfunded for years. Whenever people try to make a decision about what to cut, mental health is mental health and addiction services is always the first to go. Um, and when people are making the decision about providing insurance between mental and dental, people are choosing dental uh, and not mental health. And so it's a poorly understood group of disorders. And, and the truth of the matter is, is that uh, most people are frightened of their own uh, of mental illness and potentially falling into uh, mental sickness. Uh, that it's avoided. And from a stigma standpoint, we don't talk about it. Now, the COVID pandemic has showed uh, that all of the cuts we've made in public health and mental health are now uh, bearing no fruit, right? Uh, and the reason is, is that there are no services, there are no doctors, there are no beds. Uh, and what's fascinating is that we have seen disruption in mental health services across the globe, 93% of countries are reporting problems with mental health uh, delivery in their countries, despite them saying it's an integral part of the COVID plan. Uh, if you look across the world, only 17% of countries increased their funding for mental health. The United States was not one of them, uh, which is not surprising, uh, given the fact that we don't cover it uh, to begin with. Uh, so, you know, when I, what, I, what we're seeing is basically increased rates of depression, increased rates of anxiety, increased rates of trauma, uh, increased rates of addiction, increased rates of suicide, uh, and this new phenomenon of uh, new onset psychosis uh, and brain fog uh, status post-COVID. And we are completely ill-prepared uh, to manage these things prior to the pandemic. We're even less prepared now uh, with even uh, less funding. And you would think we would get more funding and hence be more prepared given all of the mental health symptoms that we're seeing following COVID. Uh, in the New York Times, you uh, described the case that you were a part of where someone was experiencing really severe mental health uh, symptoms after contracting COVID-19. Can you uh, share some details about that case with us? Yeah, she was a 42-year-old physical therapist, mother of four. Uh, she came into the hospital because she uh, was originally having thoughts that she wanted to kill herself. That morphed into wanting to kill her kids. And she had had a plan in which to kill them and recognized that this was unusual. She originally went to an outside hospital prior to coming uh, to uh, the hospital I worked at. Uh, she got treatment, did not get better, came to our hospital, and what we recognized is that she was having profound psychotic symptomatology, despite having no risk factors for psychosis, uh, having no family history, uh, and, and having a very, what we consider, stable life. Uh, there were, she did not have any issues with 
finances. She did not have any issues with her marriage. She did not have any outside stressors. The only thing that happened to her was COVID. What were your initial thoughts when this was happening? Did you think that it was COVID related? So when the first patient happened, when we met her, um, you know, of course you're like, this can't be happening, right? This is, I'm just making this up. This cannot be happening. Uh, and, and I originally was like, well, maybe it's just a really bad depression. Maybe she has a new onset of a mood disorder. Maybe there's something that I'm missing. And then what happened is a second patient came in. Similar story, high functioning, no risk factors, no substance use, doing well, catches COVID, develops a profound psychosis where they believe that their brother is trying to kill them. And then we had a third patient and a fourth patient. And by that time, I thought, there has to be something. I can't be the only one seeing this. So I went to Facebook, to the COVID psychiatry groups, and posted, is anyone seeing this weird phenomenon? And the messages came pouring in. We were seeing people, people were saying, absolutely, we're seeing this. It's unusual. I've never seen anything like this. Uh, and, and someone needs to talk about it. Well, A, how did you guys go about treating something you had never seen before? And B, what did y'all do with the information next? Did you take it to your superiors or uh, did you just continue what you guys were doing, which I'm assuming is throwing the kitchen sink at this thing? Well, because we were all learning about it. So everyone was trying everything, right? And so, you know, we were trying all of the different medications. We were trying to basically elucidate, was there any imaging findings that were associated with it? Uh, you know, we and I ended up writing an article to the BMJ as a case report, and then uh, it was not published um, because they thought it was too new, and they thought that this may have already been described uh, with SARS and with MERS. Uh, later on, a few months later, they do publish a case report, uh, not mine, um, about this issue, uh, which is totally fine because it's an important issue for us to be talking about. Uh, what, what made this issue come to light um, is that uh, the media brought it to light. The media thought it was an important issue. Uh, and then the New York Times article happens. And then what has happened since is a, a flood of patients who have been contacting me to be like, do I have COVID psychosis? And, and really, is this what, does this explain this uh, thing that is happening to me? Uh, and so what I think has been really amazing about this moment is that this moment affords us an opportunity, one, to basically connect with patients in a meaningful way to talk about mental illness uh, with people who believe that they would never be affected uh, in their lives. And then two, it also gives us the ability, if we choose to, to study schizophrenia uh, in a more meaningful way. Uh, as we are seeing psychosis, psychosis happen uh, in patients uh, who, have, who have absolutely no risk factors for it at all. As we gather more data, are there some groups that are being impacted more than others? Uh, young versus old, white versus black, American versus non-American. Uh, you know, in short, are there uh, some groups that are being disproportionately impacted by COVID-19 uh, related mental illness uh, more than others? Yeah, I mean, the data basically says that if you're black and brown in this country, that things are just, it's going to disproportionately affect you, right? Uh, and that's because we underfund uh, mental illness in the POC community and have done that for years. Uh, and we can have a debate of whether that's intentional or accidental, but I believe that's intentional. 
Um, in addition uh, to that, we're seeing that if you have less education, that you're more likely to be affected by mental illness. So these are all of the things when we talk about health, we're talking more about health and not just health insurance, right? So health is all of the things that go into the, the, the ability for you to be healthy, which is food insecurity and poverty and housing insecurity and domestic violence and gun violence. And all of those things are equally as important to having this conversation and cannot be excluded uh, when we have this conversation about health. And unfortunately, politics really wants to focus on just how does one pay for health? Uh, and this conversation has really been about health insurance, which is also why we have not been funding public health. Yeah, absolutely. I think another thing I'd add is that we need to think about mental health more broadly. We're all experiencing different levels of mental illness. On the podcast, we often talk about all of the suffering and silence that's been happening due to social isolation. And that's coupled with this dark cloud, this general malaise that exists due in part to doom scrolling and physical distancing and uh, this fucked up leadership that we are uh, exposed to or the lack thereof. And a lot of our listeners may not be able to relate to those who suffer from these severe psychotic symptoms that we're hearing about post-COVID, but they can relate to some of these uh, aforementioned uh, you know, events uh, and occurrences and feelings uh, that I just mentioned. Uh, what's your general sense of how people are doing during these dark times and as a result of the weight of the pandemic? Yeah, I mean, I, I think that you don't have to go very far in talking to your friends to realize that everyone is suffering. Uh, you know, we are all suffering, uh, you know, some more than others. Uh, I think this is really related to the fact that, you know, our society is ill-prepared to manage things that are complex. Uh, and these really complex systems are, are integrative in, in biopsychosocial models. Uh, we're in a world where we super specialize and everyone wants to see sort of a specialist and everyone wants to go to a specialist, but there's also the need to be thinking about the person as a whole, right? Move away from in medicine and primarily because, you know, our payment structures uh, encourage specialist behavior right, and special treatments and, and the intervention, as opposed to all of the things that go into staying healthy. Speaking of staying healthy, it's hard for us to stay healthy when we can't talk to one another. I was in church this weekend, and my pastor talked about truth and how the absence of truth undermines our ability to think critically and have meaningful conversations. And he's right. And I had some time to really think about this and break this down. Black and white people feel uncomfortable talking to one another. Catholics and Jews feel uncomfortable talking to one another. Certain people in this country feel as if they are above reproach. Men and women are constantly at odds with one another. The list literally goes on and on. And there's an incredible amount of division in our society, not just politics, but in our society as a whole. As you know, a few days ago, a group of rioters staged a coup on Capitol Hill that was incited by the president. Incited by the president. This is shit we never thought we'd see. And by now, we've all been exposed to the jarring images of a woman being shot at point-blank range while trying to enter one of the buildings. We've also seen police officers 
letting the rioters in. And we know how that would have looked if the group of protesters were African-American. Seeing these gross inequities is equally jarring. And as messed up as it is to see this woman getting shot, to see these rioters being let in, it actually pales in comparison to some of the shit that we saw in the summer and fall, namely the murders of innocent black and brown men at the hands of the police, at the hands of those who are commissioned to protect and serve. All I can say is that consuming all of these images can't be good for our health. And I'm especially concerned for our young folk. I can't speak to other people, but I know as someone who's 33 years old and sort of, you know, bridging two generations, that all of these images have had a negative impact on me and it's personally fucked me up, at least to some degree. Are you seeing the same in practice? Are you seeing that uh, the bombardment of negative stimuli on social media, are you seeing that that is uh, negatively impacting the mental health of many people in practice? Yeah, I mean, the data is really clear on this, is that the more engagement you have with social media, the worse off you're gonna be. Uh, and and that is intentional as well, um, or, an un, like, uh, or a consequence. Uh, social media is really powerful in that it allows us to connect and allows us to move as a collective force. However, it's also really destructive uh, and is rewiring our biochemistry, right? I mean, and that's factually happening you know, hitting likes and hearts and all of these things basically cause dopaminergic surges. It makes people uh, withdraw, makes people feel like they're, they're missing something. Uh, in addition, it's also really frustrating to basically be watching your friends having a really good time while you're doing everything you can to try to fight the pandemic. I mean, it's infuriating, right? I mean, I can't begin to describe to you how angry I am because I've had to make so many changes to my life because I work with really vulnerable patients. Uh, that it, it's uh, maddening to me to basically get online and see my friends vacationing or taking air flight that is unnecessary and also joking about the pandemic. Uh, and, and what we're seeing you know, from our political leaders is that they really don't understand like what it means to take care of people and what it means to actually make decisions for the benefit of helping a society. And I think that what we're seeing, uh, you know, uh, the unrest that happened this past summer is true suffering that has been unanswered. And until we decide we are going to answer people's suffering, it will continue to happen. And so, you know, the, the, the issue is you can only push people so far before you break them. And, and, and I think that people um, have gotten accustomed to the fact that uh, they can just keep piling more shit on you. And, and that's okay. And at some point, people say that's enough. And, and you need to make this better. But the problem is, is the power structures that are in place are not designed to make things better. Right? They're designed for special interest groups who have specific ideas of what they think should happen and must happen for the benefit of their investors and constituents. And that's where we are. 
Well, you're trying to do something about that, right? You've started an amazing political action group called Doctors in Politics. Can you tell us about some of the work that you do? Yeah, so Doctors in Politics is the creation that happened uh, in the midst of this pandemic. And it really was a group of doctors who are just sick and tired of watching our profession get eaten up by political and economic powers that don't care about patients. Uh, what we as doctors do is take care of people. We want to take care of people. We want to help people. We want to be part of your family. But insurance companies and hospitals are getting in the way of that. And in no other time are we investing so much money in healthcare with having worse outcomes. Doctors are really about making that political change, organizing doctors, healthcare workers, patients together to basically run doctors for office on a unified message that we are talking about health and not just health insurance. We demand that people be treated with dignity and respect and that our profession be allowed to do that and take care of people regardless of where they live regardless of their religion, race, orientation, that this is, this is a fundamental to allowing people to, to pursue happiness, which is in the constitution. You must be allowed to pursue happiness and that happens with a cornerstone and foundation of health. You cannot do it if you are sick, it's impossible. And so we care about changing these laws. And, and what we have learned from Haven, uh, which is the group that was started by Bezos and Warren Buffett to try to fix healthcare, is that you can have all the money in the world, you can have all of the influence, you can have all of the people, but unless you have political will, you can't make a dent in healthcare. And so this is about making, uh, disrupting healthcare. This is about changing the conversation. This is about getting good people into office to make good laws that help patients be better and do better and live dignified lives. This probably isn't news to you, but people don't trust doctors. And we're seeing that more so in the debates about whether or not people trust the vaccine. As you can imagine, not having the trust of your patients or potential patients uh, is a huge barrier to care. And in the same way, not having the trust of people is a huge barrier to garnering their vote. Uh, what are some ways uh, or what are your thoughts about uh, the mistrust that exists um, as it pertains to people trusting doctors and how that might impact their prospects of uh, getting into politics or staying in politics? Yeah, the doctors that we have in politics suck. I mean, we have 17 in congressional seats, 14 of them are Republicans. Paul Rand basically doesn't believe in science, uh, despite being a doctor. I mean, of course, people are hesitant about their doctor. In addition, you know, the healthcare system basically rewards doctors for doing procedures. Doctors have less time to spend with their patients. The patients are feeling like nobody is listening to them. And so what we are trying to do is find 50 compassionate, patient-nominated doctors from across the country who, who patients believe would be really great at representing what they care about. We are not interested in egomaniacs. We are not interested in people who want to be in power. What we are interested in, the, the, our ideal candidate is someone who cares deeply about patients and our issues, who believe that everyone deserves a dignified life, who doesn't want to be in office. That's our ideal person. Sheesh, I can feel the passion. Where can people find more information if they're interested? 
Yeah, if you go to our website, www.doctorsinpolitics.org, uh, you can sign up for our newsletter uh, and you can also uh, nominate someone to run. Uh, we have a nomination form. We're looking for 50 candidates for the 2022 cycle. Uh, and we would love to hear from you. Also, we're on Instagram and Facebook. If there's a doctor that you want to nominate, you want to make a video about how much you love your doctor and, and you want us to reach out to them, we'll reach out to them, right? We want patients to basically help us find these people that really will make the difference. Okay, we're going to end with some fun stuff. And you know where I'm going with this because I could already see you laughing. Um, and I'm doing this in large part because people think that doctors don't do anything fun. They pretty much think that we're robots. Well, a little birdie told me that you are a burlesque performer out here cutting up a rug. So please indulge us. Tell me no, how you no, got started I'm happy with to that. Do that. No, I'm happy to no, I'm happy to do that. Like, I think that what you have to remember, people are multidimensional, right? And we, we are the ones who put limits on ourselves, right? We are the ones who basically decide that. And, and I don't believe that. I believe people are amazing and can do amazing things uh, with people who believe in them and given the right opportunities, people can astound you. And, and what made me get into the arts is that the work that I was doing was really hard and very serious. And I was confronted with death every day. And I needed something to channel that energy into something constructive and something beautiful. And so the arts allow you to transform that pain into something uh, productive and meaningful and, and a, a place to start a conversation and to change minds. I, Art by far, if you invest in the arts, if you spend money in the arts, it pays for itself five to 10 times. The data is really clear. That includes getting kids into art education early. Kids basically complete high school uh, at higher rates. They do better on our standardized tests. They feel more creative. They're more productive in our society. Why we don't invest in the arts is crazy to me because that's exactly where great innovation comes from. So from my standpoint, I just have been exploring art in all of its different facets and, and learning from different people and, and being taken down different paths. And I absolutely uh, don't mind talking about the arts and admitting that I basically uh, perform burlesque because I think it's a beautiful way of telling political commentary. I mean, it came out of telling political commentary. So why would I not want to be a part of how politically minded I am and how artistically creative burlesque is. Absolutely, I have to be a part of it, right? So, I mean, there's nothing that makes me happier, right, than being in a collective space with people who do not know each other, who have a shared experience, who all breathe at the same time, right, and, and, and come together as a unit, have it, and then go back to their normal lives. But that moment was our moment. That's amazing. That is amazing. There's nothing else in the world that's like it. I went to schools that greatly emphasize the importance of art uh, in our lives. We learned that art isn't an elixir. It's part of the cure. So thank you so much for sharing that message. Well, that's all, folks. Thank you so much, Heisem, for inspiring us with your wise words and for truly highlighting a form of advocacy that doctors and healthcare professionals should really consider. 
using our voices to disrupt the current ways of thinking and politics is a powerful first step. And I predict great success for you. And I hope many people join you uh, in your journey. No, thank you so much. And I really, I really love what you're doing here. Thank you. Thank you, everyone, for listening. If you have any questions or comments, drop us a line at HOH the podcast. Stay safe, wear a mask, and I can't wait for our next conversation. See you next week. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.